We all know that the Mishkan and subsequently the Beis Hamikdash is the ultimate place of divine revelation and engagement here on earth. Only we're now going to flip that story on its head and learn something about how we connect to Hashem in a way that in a certain sense even goes beyond the Mishkan itself. And all of that we're going to learn from how the Psukim tell us about the power of the Mishkan leading into the story of Karbonois but interrupted by what seems to be a distraction. After the Torah tells us in great detail about how they assembled the Mishkan, and equally or perhaps more importantly, that once they made the Mishkan, the Divine Presence dwelt there, Pasuk tells us that the cloud of glory covered the oil moed, and Hashem's energy, Hashem's glory filled the entire Mishkan. and was so intense it's here, Goydel Ashra Zoi, that the Torah describes how powerful this um, presence of Hashem was. It was so powerful and so intense that Moshe Rabbeinu himself, the most pristine human, the, the, the ultimate human being, the ultimate Sadi, could not enter into Oyel Moed because of the presence of Hashem. So that's what the Torah tells us. Straight after that, the Torah also then continues to tell us, Whenever that cloud would then lift off the Mishkan, that's when the Eden would travel in all the various travels that they did. And if the cloud did not lift, then they would not move until such time as the cloud had lifted. Okay, so what are we talking about? The intensity of how much Shekhinah there is in the Mishkan. Oh, and by the way, as long as that cloud representing that intensity is there, you don't travel. Now, that's the part that doesn't seem to make sense. Because L'cha'ira, it's face value. These psukim that describe when the cloud would lift, that's when the Jews would travel, surely belongs in the section of Torah that talks about when the Jews would travel in the Midbar. And the truth is, have a look at where the Torah talks in Baal Oischa about the travels of the Jewish people. It says these things again. So therefore we have to ask ourselves, what is the relevant connection between how the Jews would travel through the desert? That they would only travel when the cloud lifted. <clears throat> then you saw. And if it didn't lift, then they wouldn't travel. What is that connect, or how is that connected to the theme of this parasha, which is talking about how powerful the divine presence was in the Mishkan. Two completely different topics. Our parasha is describing they built the Mishkan and now it channeled this amazing, powerful divine energy. And there appears to be an aside. When they would travel, they could only do so when the Mishkan did not have the cloud over it. So we have to understand why. The first place we're going to look is the interpretation of the Svarna. It tells us that this actual point of when the Torah tells us that only once the cloud lifted, then they could travel, that is that shows us how permanent the, the experience of godliness, the Hashra, the divine presence was in the Mishkan. It was so much part of the Mishkan experience to the extent it would never budge from that space unless the Jews had to travel. So the Sephorno sees it as it's just highlighting and, and re, re-emphasizing for us how much the Divine Presence is here in the Mishkan except the times of travel. 
But the truth is, that's not enough of an answer for what we're looking for. When you look at the wording of the Pasuk, it's pretty clear. That it sounds very much like the parasha here at the end of Pekudei is telling us about how and when the Jews would be allowed to move or not move. The Medrash actually summarizes it simply in these words. This is the description of how they traveled. And then, if that's the case, back to our original question, why is the story of how the Jews would travel or when they knew it was time to travel? A topic that is discussed in detail in Parasha boy. How is that connected to the story here in our Parasha, which is how they made the Mishkan and then the fact that the Divine Presence became manifest in the Mishkan? Now, the truth is that the question is even greater when you start to think about context. The, the, the question becomes stronger. The beginning of the next parasha, which is the beginning of the next Sefer of Chumash, which starts by saying, Hashem called Moshe into oil moed, say Chazal, that that's Bo Kehemshech Lenemarkan. That is a direct continuation from the theme here that speaks about the intensity of the of the Shekhinah in the Mishkan. It's speaking to the point that was mentioned before telling us how they would know when to travel. Why? Because what did it say before? Moshe could not enter Oyomoyed because of the intensity of the Shekhinah. Which means that Moshe had no capacity to be able to enter Oyomoyed and, and open a, a path for him. And that's what allowed him in. So the Chazal tell us, Pekudei leads into Vayikra because Pekudei ends up by telling us there's a barrier to entry of the Oyomoyed, the intensity of the Shechina. That barrier is lifted when Vayikra Oyomoyed, when Hashem calls him. So if that's the case, Now if that's what the Chazal is saying, makes a tremendous amount of sense. If that's the case, then in between the flow from the end of Pekudei to Vayikra, the fact that Moshe couldn't naturally enter the Oyomoyed and he had to be called and summoned by Hashem. Now, we're reading it and saying, hang on, the Torah diverts to a sidebar issue. Sipur HaMasoi is telling us how the Jews would know when they should or shouldn't travel. Which apparently has nothing to do with the Mishkan. So how do you go from that? You're describing the Mishkan is so intense, so much Shechina that Moshe can't go in until Vayikra he's called in. Oh, and by the way, in between, you've just got to know that the Jews don't travel until the, the cloud lifts. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Now, we know for sure that everything in Torah is absolutely precise. So therefore, once the Medrash tells us that the beginning of Sefer Vayikra, Hashem summoning Moshe into the Oyomoyed, says, is a direct continuation from our parasha, which says, that Moshe on his own could not enter Oyomoyed, move on, that implies, that's not just two factoids that go together. Fact is, Moshe couldn't enter Oyel Moed. Therefore, fact is, Hashem had to call him in. It's much more than that. The parasha that tells us the story of the intensity of the Shekhinah and the parasha that tells us about Hashem summoning Moshe, those two parashas with their respective themes must also have a connection. So what are their respective themes? Sefer Vayikrosh, Yonah Sefer 
We know that Vayikra focuses mainly on all of the details of the various korbanos. Bobe Hemshech, that is a follow-on, not like Lairak, let's see for Binyan Vakomas, Hamishkan, Korbanos. Not as you think. Okay, first you tell us where the korbanos are going to be brought, so you describe how we build the Mishkan. Now it's logical. Once you know where the korbanos are going to be brought, tell us how the korbanos are going to be brought. It's more than that. But the specifics about how the Shekhinah manifested and how intense the experience of the Shekhinah was in the Mishkan, that is directly relevant to the story of Karbanis, and we need to understand how so. Maybe that will explain why it is that the Pasuk first tells us it's such an incredible experience of Shechina to the point that Moshe can't enter. Pause. Then, I'll tell us quickly about how the Jews did or didn't travel. And the specific emphasis over here is that in order to travel, first the Shechina has to depart to a certain extent from the Mishkan. Why, which is Vehealoi, Sianamala Mishkan, where the Pasuk tells us, Kitoichen Inyan Karbon, Hakarbon is Koshur, because if you think about it, the theme of Karbonis is linked, Yoisem Asher La Hashor Sashrina Bemishkan, not just simply to the fact that that's a place of Shrina, but more so to the fact that before the Jews could travel away, that there has to be a removal or a distancing of the Shechina before they could move. So somehow that is linked to the Karbonais, and we need to understand how. So in order to understand that, what we'll do is we'll examine Sefer Shmois, linking the beginning and the end, as we always do in Sfarim of Torah, we always link the beginning and the end. So our uh, explanation is going to begin by exploring the connection between the beginning and the end of Sefer Shmois. And that fits with the axiom in Judaism that the end and the beginning of every process is completely interlinked. One of the glaring links between the beginning and the end of Sefer Shmois is the name of the parasha that starts it and the name of the parasha that ends it, because as we know very well, the name of a parasha represents what the main theme is. So the theme of the beginning of Shmois and the theme of the end of Shmois, and you'll see that they have something in common, both of them convey something to do with counting. Shmois, the first parish of Sefer Shmois, Kipir Shashi, Rashi tells us, was about counting the Yidin, Afal even though they had already been counted already when they came to Mitzrayim originally. Chosar Menon Chulei, says Rashi, they counted them again, to show how the beloved the Jews are to Hashem. What's the theme of Shmois? Counting the Yidin. What's Pekudei? Minyan Mishkolen Nidnit Baisam Mishkan Kol Kele B'chol Avedosei. And Pekudei is the audit of all of the contributions that were made to make the Mishkan and all of the things that were that became the elements of the Mishkan. So both of them carry the theme of keeping account of what's happened. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If I had a look at the whole book of Shmois, what would you say is the overriding theme of the whole book of Shmois? The overarching theme of the whole book of Shmois is the Jews being redeemed from Mitzrayim. If that's the case of minion. you're going to have to say that if the beginning and the end of Sefer Shmois, which is all about Geula, 
then you have to say that the concept of counting is somehow very closely related to the concept of Gula from Yitzrayim, because counting is what links the beginning and the end of this book of Exodus. And now, if that's the case, from Canaan and Mubon, it actually seems like a very poor choice of theme to link with Gula. Doesn't make sense. Logic says that the idea of counting something and the concept of breaking free in Exodus are opposite themes. On the one hand, you have the idea of counting something, which means they now have a finite number, which means it expresses limitation. And the number that you associate with something highlights its finitude, its limitation. Whereas on the other hand, The whole concept of Geula is breaking out of limitations, breaking out of Mitzrayim, restrictions, finite limits. So how do you link counting, which defines and limits things, with Geula, which breaks free of definitions? Now we find a similar paradox right at the beginning of Parsha Shmois itself. Because on the one hand, What's the name of the parasha, which is supposed to represent the theme of the whole parasha? Shmois, which, which as we said, which we said is associated with counting, more specifically counting the amount of Jews who came down to Mitzrayim, a very finite number of people, 70 souls. Straight after we start, what's the next thing the Torah tells us? The Torah tells us, that the population of the Jewish people exploded. Which implies a growth that is totally beyond all ordinary expectation of growth. Now if that's also included in the name Shmois, there's the paradox. So that means Shmois, which represents counting, which represents giving something a finite number, which represents limits, is somehow also associated with an explosion of numbers that don't seem to have any limits. How do you reconcile that? And guess what? You'll find a similar paradox in the final parasha, Pekudei, our parasha as well. Because you find a similar theme at the end of the Sefer Shmois, the audit of the Mishkan. That represents finite. We know exactly how much gold, how much silver, how many items we use. Every single thing that formed part of the service in the Mishkan and part of the Mishkan itself had a specific number. You could exactly, you could audit it perfectly. Yet, when you get to the end of the parasha, it's described, It talks about the fact that there was this experience of the divine that is so intense that even Moshe couldn't enter. It was beyond all limits. So you start off the parasha by saying something which is very balabatish. We know exactly how many materials and what they were used for and what size each thing was, etc. End of the parasha, such an intense breakthrough of all boundaries that even Moshe, who the Rambam calls the supreme human, could not handle 
they experience absolute paradox. So what are we seeing over here? Consistent paradox between, on the one hand, a description of quite finite, tangible realities, and on the other hand, breaking free of any kind of restriction and any kind of agbola. Well, the answer to that lies in understanding the paradox of the whole purpose of creation and the idea that you're supposed to break the boundaries of the world without breaking the world. Klolos the explanation is this. Of course, the ultimate goal is to reach something which is completely infinite, represented by the concept of Geula breaking through beyond the restraints and parameters of the world. The intention of experiencing something which is beyond limits is never intended that there should be no value to limits or the things that lived it within limits. What is the goal? Absolute paradox. The ultimate goal of the whole Jewish experience is to create the impossible harmonizing of that which is completely infinite with that which is absolutely finite. In fact, this idea is referenced with regards to how you count the Jewish people. The Pasuk tells us, The Jewish people, their number will be like the grains of sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. So what does the Pasuk tell us? There is a number, but it's a number that can't be counted. A blending of which is beyond any restraint or any finite reality within the finite reality. So likewise, you see a similar experience in the Mishkan. Yes, of course, there's divine presence, which is beyond anything that even Moshe Rabbeinu can contain. And yet, where did this intense Shechina manifest? In a finite space that had dimensions and had very specific Kalim. Why? Because we know that the ultimate goal of the entire creation is because Hashem had a super rational desire to be completely at home and free in the most restrained, finite environment, the lowest possible environment. In order to achieve that, it takes two parts, two processes. Aleph, on the one hand, on the one hand, the home that we're building for Hashem has to be a home for Hashem Himself. Hashem, as He manifests His essence, completely beyond any concept of name, description, size, or any other form of measurement. On the one hand, so it's got to be completely accessible for Hashem Himself. On the other hand, at the same time, this home that is so much an expression of Hashem's essence has to be within the lowest, most finite world. The physical world, which is the lowest, most finite existence that could be, within space, time, measurement, definition, and all other finite parameters. Now, that's an absolute paradox. In fact, it sounds like an impossible achievement. So, these two thrusts, that on the one hand, you want to create an environment for Hashem's essence that is fundamentally beyond all definition. And yet at the same time, we want this to be manifest in the most finite, limited, squashed environment. 
Where you see this most acutely expressed is when you analyze the difference between the Jewish soul and the world in which it lives. The ultimate, deepest motivation for Hashem's wish to have a home in the lowest realms is The main thrust of what Hashem wants is actually to be in us. Within the human, within the Jewish experience, within the Jewish soul, as it lives in a human form. The ultimate goal is that the Jewish community should be the home for Hashem. Right? What, how does the Pasuk say? Considering that every Jew is absolutely one with Hashem. Therefore, the Jewish people are the ultimate home to express Hashem's essence. Because we are, so to speak, already the same entity. Whereas the impact that the world will feel of becoming Hashem's home is that they will recognize, every element of the world will recognize that the fact that it exists, the entire reality of its existence is thanks to Hashem's essence. And besides Hashem, there's nothing else that exists. So, a Jew is one with Hashem's essence, and the rest of the world has to become conscious of the fact that there's nothing other than Hashem's essence. And Hashem's essence allows these things to exist. So, where's the ultimate experience of divine revelation within the Jewish Neshama? But Hashem wanted that to occur not when neshamas are floating up in Gan Eden, but specifically when those neshamas are manifested in human bodies having physical daily experiences. Which means that it's supposed to be manifest through our efforts within this finite physical world. Where we turn physical items into holy items. Because it's specifically when we as Jewish people take the things that belong to this world and transform them into holy entities that are connected to Hashem, that is the proof that we are obviously connected to Hashem because who else could do this? How else is it possible to transform a physical item to become holy, to become absolutely connected to Hashem? It's only possible if you, the practitioner, are absolutely one with Hashem. So therefore, each time, we take the physical items of this world and translate them into Kedusha, that is an expression that we are one with Hashem. Or the signal in Acher to say this differently. At which point do you see with the naked eye that a Jewish person is the ultimate expression of Hashem's presence in this world? Where do you see that we are absolutely one with Hashem? With no obstruction. That would only be clear if, not when I'm living in Ghanaian, if I'm living in Ghanaian, I don't know that I'm an expression of Hashem's essence. Maybe I'm an expression of a particular level of holiness that can, that can exist in a, in a wholesome way in Ghanaian. How do I know I'm connected to Hashem's essence? Hashem's essence obviously has nothing that can obstruct it. So when I live in a world of obstruction, I live in a world of things that appear not to have a connection to Hashem. And then in my life, that does not become an obstacle to godliness. On the contrary, it becomes a tool for godliness. That's an indication 
that I'm connected to Hashem's essence. In fact, the ultimate expression is where you see this physical world with all of its drawbacks suddenly becomes the most appropriate place for divine revelation. Why? Because we did it. Because we did mitzvahs. Because we identified that money is used for tzedakah or for buying beautiful items of mitzvahs or to help people or whatever it is. And the same with food and the same with clothing, etc. So the ultimate experience of what Hashem designed the world for is when a Jewish person expressing an neshama that is one with Hashem takes a piece of the world that ostensibly is a barrier to godliness and shows that it's not a barrier, it's actually a conduit for godliness. Now we can understand why the beginning of Shmois, which is the story, the book of Exodus, of breaking free, starts off first by giving the quantity, the number of Jews. And then it concludes by telling us the audit of all the different parts of the Mishkan. So if you had a look at the order of how the Torah unfolds, the first book of the Torah tells us pretty much how the world came to be and how people evolved in the early period of history. The whole book of Bereshis is the world without knowing its purpose. What's its purpose? Its purpose is for the sake of the Jewish people who we'd only really encounter in the book of Shmois at the time of the Exodus and for the Torah which we'll encounter in Parshas Yisrael when the Torah is given. So therefore, we'll say for Shmois, compared to Bereshis, Shmois is a completely different place. That's a book that talks about the Jews as a nation, not just as a family. It's a section of the, that starts to explain to us that there's a Torah and that there's laws. That's where we start to see the path to fulfilling the purpose for why the world was created. Now, this path to fulfill the purpose of creation has a starting point and has an, a point of conclusion. The starting point, which is not just chronological, but it's So what is the driving force? What is the main thing Hashem is interested in, in terms of creation? What is the, the intention behind the intention? It's to have Yidin who are connected to Hashem's essence. That's why, how do we start Pasha Shmois? By counting the people, as Rashi says, to show how, show how valuable and precious these people are to Hashem, because they are, we are the Kavanah. That's why, who's counting the Yin? Not any individual human. Hashem himself. They counts us and he puts it into his Torah. That's the beginning of the process. When does the process reach its completion, reach its end? Where you see that the intention is realized. It's when you take physical items and you transform them into a holy place as the Mishkan does. So there you've got the whole of the path of not only Jewish history, but the intention of the world mapped up in the easiest way. The purpose is the Yidden to engage the world, transform it into something holy like the Mishkan, that is what it's all about. Now, as we already mentioned, at which point can you identify that the Jewish Neshama is actually one with Hashem's essence, not with some other lower uh, manifestation of godliness? You see that when we are successful in our spiritual mission, in the lowest, most 
materialistic reality. A place of absolute divine darkness and concealment. This is where we flip the whole story on its head. So if the goal is that we should be able to manifest godliness in the least likely, most dark, most obscure place, where do you see most of our success? Where will you see us achieving our purpose? You'll see it in a place not in the where you build the Mishkan, which is already a holy environment. That's a template. It's not the ultimate. You'll see it when the Jewish people enter the parts of the world that are not susceptible, not naturally inclined to be tools and conduits for holiness. Or to broaden the concept, it's when we're in a state of golos. Where you don't see godliness in the world. That's where we have the greatest impact, when you don't expect it. So now we can understand why it is when the Torah reaches the point of the pinnacle, you've built the Mishkan. Look how successful your building in the Mishkan was. The Shechina is there in such an intense way that even Moshe cannot enter. The Torah says, hang on a second. At that point, Dafka, the Torah says, and there will be journeys. And what kind of journeys? Journeys where that intensity of Shechina Moves. The cloud lifts. It's not present. Because what's the Torah telling us? The goal, purpose, and achievement of the Mishkan to transform our world into a home for Hashem's essence is most achieved. It's most achieved when the Mishkan empowers us that wherever we travel, as the Torah says, wherever they would travel, out there in the desert, out there in the dark places of the world, that there too we could bring holiness like the Mishkan had. The Altareb explains that all of the travels the Jews made through the desert are symbolic of us taking the spiritual desert of the nations of the world within which we have lived over thousands of years and transforming all of that into a space of holiness. Even in these places where the Shechina is also in a state of exile. Which means that we don't see and experience divine revelation. As the Pasuk says, the cloud lifts and moves away. The Shechina leaves our immediate environment. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the Jews refine those environments. And we transform places that are by nature dark and unspiritual to become absolutely holy and radiant with God. So in an annul, this concept, this is the, the innovation of here. This is the chap. That the purpose of the Mishkan is to have an impact beyond the space and time of the Mishkan. Something you can actually identify within the process of the Mishkan itself. As we know, the primary focus of the Mishkan was to bring Karbonis, as the Rambam says. Because you could effectively split the Mishkan experience into two, the, the structure and the service that happened within that structure. What's the difference between the actual building and structure of the Mishkan and the Avodah that happened within the Mishkan? 
What's the goal of building the Mishkan? The primary focus of building a Mishkan is not so much about taking physical items and transforming them into a conduit for godliness. The primary reason you make a Mishkan is The primary goal of making a Mishkan is that there should be a location on earth wherein the Divine Presence can enter our earth, come down into our earth, and influence and, and, and illuminate our earth. That's something way beyond what any physical item might be able to produce. Yet when you talk about bringing carbonos, there the entire purpose is to take the animal and refine it from being just an animal and transform and elevate it to become a conduit for holiness. You want to take something physical and turn it into something which is absolutely holy. Therefore, even though the service of bringing carbonus, which means to take physical things and bring them into a state of holiness, you could see that the bringing of carbonus is just a prelude and a preparation to something far greater, which is that there should be divine presence manifested place. In other words, I do the work and Hashem responds by bringing Yishchina into the place and specifically over the Oren. By the way, that's also one of the reasons why why the Aleph of Vayikra is minimized. To represent a diminishing of divine energy. Because the type of divine holy energy that is brought down into the Mishkan. For this reason, that's why the Aleph of Vayikra is a miniature Aleph. Which represents a condensing of divine light. Why? Because the word Vayikra also means to call, to bring, to draw. So it represents the energy of godliness that you draw into the space of the Mishkan. How? Through the avoid of Karbonus. Which of course is the theme of Vayikra, which is the book of Karbonus. It's a lesser energy than what the Mishkan itself is able to bring. Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that the avoid of carbonus might seem as secondary and only a preparation for something larger and more powerful. Nevertheless, here's the chap. That energy, that effort of taking the world, the physical world, and transforming it into something holy will take us to a spiritual level that is beyond the Mishkan itself. To take the physical items of Olam Hazeh and to transform them into conduits for godliness is greater in a sense than the Mishkan itself. That will help us to understand why it is that the book of Ayikra, the fact that Moshe is called in and invited into the Mishkan and the idea of Karbonus is not just following on from the fact that there was a tremendous amount of Shechina in the Mishkan, because that made sense to us. But we wanted to know, so why break and talk about the fact that the Jews are going to travel? How is that relevant to Moshe being called into the Mishkan? Ah, now we know that it is relevant. Because it carries the same theme. How do you achieve the full intention behind the Mishkan? And how do you achieve it? With far greater impact. 
Where? How? When you touch the parts of the world that the Mishkan doesn't already touch. That's the goal. When we get to the real Gashmis of this world and transform it into something holy, that is the ultimate state of spiritual transformation for which the world was created. I will say, but when the Jews are on the march, when they're traveling, when they're not in the precinct of the Mishkan, there's less divine energy. True. There might be less visible, evident divine energy, but what happens is now you see what the Jews really are, who we really are, what we can really accomplish. Not only can we accomplish in a holy environment, which might show that we have limited abilities, but we are connected to Hashem's essence and therefore we can affect and achieve even in the least likely and even in the the the, 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 the uh, opposing elements of this world. This is the deeper meaning of what it says when the cloud would lift. That's when the Jews would travel through all their journeys. If you observe this superficially, it looks like a dip in spirituality. The Shekhinah has left. But when you know how to look at things with a deeper, healthier lens. This avoid of stepping out of the Mishkan into the dark world out there gives us access to something that is greater and higher than whatever the cloud of the Mishkan represents. And the next time the Mishkan stops, the Mishkan now has a greater experience of godliness within it. Why? Because we touched a dark world that the Mishkan never went to. This is a direct lesson for each of us in our Avodah Hashem. Don't get distracted by how dark and difficult the Golos is. Particularly when each of us knows where we are really holding spiritually. Our personal Golos. As long as we work to fulfill what Hashem expects of us as our shlichus, wherever we may travel, wherever it is, even if it's very far from the epicenter of what the Mishkan represents, as long as you're guided by Hashem's direction represented by the cloud over the Mishkan, where you take the cue from Hashem's Torah when you travel, when you don't travel, represented by the cloud, lifting or not. Which means that you are cognizant of the fact that the Ebishter directs you to where you're supposed to be. Wherever you go, whatever circumstances you might find yourselves in, as long as you're conscious of the fact that I'm in this place, so that now, in this place, through me, this should become a place of divine manifestation. If, if you follow that template, then wherever you go in the Golos, you're following Hashem's directions and fulfilling Hashem's purpose. So then when we talk about the cloud lifting, we're not talking about the cloud lifting and leaving. We're talking about the cloud lifting and elevating. That's where a person reaches a level that is higher than the cloud, the original Giloy Hashina that was there. Even though we said, but Moshe Rabbeinu cannot confront this divine presence in the, in, in the Mishkan, it's too powerful for him. And likewise, the Moshe Rabbeinu within each of our souls 
Nevertheless, a mamshich says, "Bechanoya shel achroya." You can bring it down into your world, into your next stop. Ad asher yisovu kuchabricho kolachad to the point that wherever you go and whatever you do, you can reflect and you can experience absolute oneness with Hashem, which is the purpose for which we were created and the purpose for which all of our life's journeys, many of which are so distant from spirituality, were all created.